The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, as many of you are probably already aware, John Galliano's recent haute couture collection for Maison Margiela has taken the fashion world by storm, with many hailing it as a magical masterpiece and others going so far as to credit with saving and forever transforming the face of fashion. So we have lots to say on this subject ourselves, but first we want to address something right up at the tippy top of this episode, and that is the fact that John Galliano, like more than a few of fashion's creative geniuses, including Coco Chanel, Carl Lagerfeld and Jacques Foth, Galliano has a troubled history. Yes, he does. And for those of you who might not be familiar with his spectacular rise and fall, Galliano shot to meteoric fame and acclaim as the head of the houses of Givenchy and Dior in the mid to late 90s. And while his work was considered some of the most original and trailblazing in contemporary fashion, he also garnered a reputation as fashion's reigning enfant terrible for his outlandishly poor behavior and hard partying ways. Fast forward to December 2010, when Galliano was indecently intoxicated in a Paris cafe and made horrific anti-Semitic comments to a group of Jewish women seated near him, which was captured on video. And as the incident went viral, his employer, LVMH, ousted him swiftly as the creative director of Dior and his eponymously named Galliano label. And because anti-Semitic speech is illegal in France, Galliano was actually brought up on criminal charges and faced trial in the Parisian court system. So fashion's crown prince and enfant terrible fell hard from grace. And while he received treatment for substance abuse and publicly atoned for his behavior, he was essentially banished from fashion Rightfully so for the next few years. Um, and a brief collaboration in 2013 with Oscar de la Renta was followed by an offer to head the house of Martin Margiela, where he has been now for the last decade. So many in the fashion world have clearly forgiven Galliano or given him a second chance, perhaps. But the question remains, should we? Right. And April and I want to state dress listeners very clearly that we denounce all anti-Semitic speech and acts. And the decision to do this episode today is something that we did not take lightly. We gave a lot of thought to this and giving airtime to some of fashion history's problematic figures. This is something we've talked a lot about over the length of this podcast, right, April, like seven plus years. And you may have noticed, dress listeners, that we've never, for instance, done an episode dedicated to Gabrielle Chanel, 
we might never do one, right? And that's because this woman has one, I mean, she's had more than enough of her share in the spotlight. We don't need to rehash the loads of other podcast episodes, books, movies that have been dedicated to her life. And two, most importantly, we find her incredibly problematic, (laughs) right, April? I mean, (laughs) especially in terms of her very well-known anti-Semitism before and during World War II. And yet, despite people at large knowing this about her, it's so often ignored and dismissed in favor of celebrating her contributions to fashion history. And it really begs this question, and one you have heard, dress listeners, heard us mention many times on the show, can you separate a creator and their problematic personal viewpoints or behavior from their creative output? And this is not just unique to fashion, right? No, of course not. So many authors are (laughs) wildly problematic, too. Authors, artists, musicians, yes. (laughs) So, and not just can you separate it, but should you? And our answer is no. There's absolutely a way to do both. And that is what we are doing here today in reference to one John Galliano. Yeah, you know, because this idea lately has, I feel like, been circulating around a little bit more uh, lately that two things can be true at the same time. And this is precisely a case of that. Can a disreputable character also be a creative genius? Or as fashion journalist Kathy Horan put it, quote, Galliano is a master at finding beauty in the misbegotten and the disreputable. He is himself a disreputable figure or was. So, Once again, fast forward, in 2013, the Anti-Defamation League, which was founded in 1913 as a, quote, New York-based international Jewish non-governmental organization and advocacy group that specializes in civil rights law and combating anti-Semitism and extremism, end quote, in 2013, they issued a statement on the occasion of Galliano's appointment at Oscar de la Renta. And this statement was from the president of the Anti-Defamation League. His name was Abraham Foxman. And he stated, quote, We believe that individuals can change their hearts and minds as long as they demonstrate true contrition. Mr. Galliano has worked arduously in changing his worldview and dedicating a significant amount of time in researching, reading, and learning about the evils of anti-Semitism and bigotry. Along his journey to recovery, he met with us numerous occasions. He has accepted full responsibility for his previous remarks and understands that hurtful comments have no place in our society. We wish him much success and look forward to working with him again in the near future as a spokesman against anti-Semitism, intolerance, and bigotry, end quote. Foxman also spoke to the New York Times in 2020 about his counsel and one-on-one work with Galliano, saying, quote, if you don't believe you can change people's hearts and minds, why bother? If you're not going to try and change hearts and minds, why are you in this business at all? You have to be able to restitute, end quote. So it would appear that Galliano has done the work to at least appear to amend his ways, right? Which is something that could never be said of Chanel, by the way, or Lagerfeld. So I think we can agree, April, that you and I at least remain hopeful that Galliano has made true and lasting change, but only time will tell, right? And you can trust us listeners that we will keep a critical eye on him always. So... Following the Anti-Defamation League's leadership on this point of restitution, and not without considerable 
consideration today. We are going to talk about the work of Jolly Galliano in the context of this very exceptional moment in fashion history that took place only a few short weeks ago. And that was, of course, the Maison Margiela 2024 Artisanal Show, which took place in Paris on January 25th, 2024. And if you have seen images of this show or watched it in its entirety on Margela's YouTube channel, you already know that what happened under a bridge that night was a bit of fashion magic, unlike anything the world had seen in quite some time. And it was inspired by the photographer Brassai's images of the seedy underbelly of Paris and his real-life cast of questionable characters from the 1930s. This show delivered a haunting jolt that is hard to forget. And it's a show that evoked real emotion in so many of us, and finally, fashion that made us feel something again. And whether you loved the show or hated it, it was an undeniable moment. And that moment, which will undoubtedly go down in fashion history, was also packed with references to the history of fashion itself. Which is why we have invited our friend and fellow fashion historian, Alexandra Samson, to join us today to decode the collection and some of its very specific references. As the curator of Haute Couture from 1947 to contemporary design at the Palais Galliera in Paris, Alexandre was in attendance at this show, so we cannot wait to hear all about his experience firsthand. Alexandra, thank you so much for being here. Alexandra, a very warm and probably wildly overdue welcome to Dressed. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes, of course. We are delighted to have you. And um, I woke up one morning a couple of weeks ago to find a fashion history making moment on my Instagram feed. And literally, I sat up in bed out loud and yelled, Alexandra, I must have Alexandra on the show to talk about this. Because I cannot think of anyone in the entire world more qualified to weigh in on all of the amazing and really beautiful fashion history references that were part of this collection, as well as the history of fashion shows themselves. So I do hope that we can chat um, about both of those things today. But first, would you tell us a little bit about your path to becoming a fashion curator and also your current role at the Palais Galliera? Of course. So uh, I worked at Palais Galliera since 14 years now, and I started like a total hazard because I was on a, I was at Ecole du Louvre. I studied there and I studied Persian archaeology. It was my specialty there. And one summer I had to earn money, so I went to the grocery store and I've been a cashier for the whole July. And then I've been treated so badly <laughs> that I had to find another way to occupy my summer. So I heard that the Palais Galliera was looking for interns for the summer and it was very late. So I just took a chance to write to them and say, are you looking for someone? Say yes. So I went there. I did inventory of bags and some haute couture uh, dresses that went there uh, that just entered the collection, which was a bit, I have to admit it, boring. <laughs> <laughs> because, because at that time, I didn't have this this these feelings and this knowledge about all about fashion was. Although I studied also a little bit costumes at Ecole du Louvre. So, and then in a drawer, one afternoon, I discovered one dress which clearly changed the tone of my, my life because it was a huge rectangle of black velvet. And it was like a huge rectangle, nothing fancy about it, but it was like folded into. 
and on the fold side you had thick cuts and then putting on on a body it created the amazing shape and i said who designed it that's so like so extraordinary and the woman in charge of the collection told me that's madame gray I say, wow, that that's that's weird because there's no themes on the shoulder. It's like a huge fold. It's like very abstract in terms of of, of creating a garment. And she told me, I always remember, but that is haute couture. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, yes, because my conception of couture was just a t-shirt with embroideries, <laughs> you know, and fancy looks, and that's it. I didn't understand at the time that the structure of the clothes has to be also questioned. So I said, but who is Madame Gray? And at the time, in France, nothing was was written a lot about Madame Gray. And so I had like a boulevard of research and I decided I would search on my own. So from one year, I've searched on my own and I discovered so many new things in French. And I, I studied also with Patricia Mia's books, Sphinx of Fashion at the FIT. And curiously enough, when Olivier Sayard, the director of the Palais Galliera, was hired in 2010. Its first exhibition was from about Madame Gray. So I found a way to to say I was interested in being like doing the researches because everything was done. And he say, okay, let's go. So I did a research on the whole exhibition, and then we did the whole exhibition. And after the exhibition, Olivier Sayard told me that was a great experience working with you. Are you interested in working with me on my own performances and my my, my books? And I say, yeah, we would love that. And then that whole whole started. And then in 2015, he suggested I would uh, take care of the contemporary department, so which is basically ready to wear an all that since the fifties and all is the production right now of the ready to wear designers. And in 2018, he left, and and with, uh, before leaving, he, he, he asked me, who is the designer who wants to do an exhibition about? And I say, Marta Margiela. So he said, well, let's contact him. So I go, okay. He answered back. So I, I, I signed my first exhibition, Marta Margiela, at the time. Yeah. And, and all of these are just leading into the reasons why I'm saying I can think of no one more qualified in the world to speak to this this show than you. Just, just a little bit to touch back on the Galliera. Uh, for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with the Palais Galliera, would you tell us about the collection itself and also the role that the museum plays as a repository for fashion history? So the Palais Galliera is a collection that has been built in 1920, precisely, thanks to the huge donation of a painter who used costumes as references for his own painting. So it was very like troubadour, late troubadour painting, as we say. So it was really like 18th-century themes. <laughs> his name was Maurice Leloir, and he gave it to the Musée Carnavalet. So the Musée Carnavalet in Paris is the Museum of the History of Paris. And then the Carnavalet, in, in the years after, Kept, and, the, and before also, received a lot of garments. And they decided to create a gallery with that for fashion. And it went very strong. And in the turnings of the 1960s, late 1960s, they decided to create like a full collection of it and to keep not only 18th and 19th century fashion, but also contrary, what they call contrary, which was clearly courage, Dior of the time and, and Paco Rabanne and, and Pierre Cardin. So they all started and then we had our final building in 1977. 
So we are the Fashion Museum of Paris. So we are depending on the city and we keeping traces of fashion around Paris designers and Paris design, which not mean French. It only means all people decided to come in Paris and showing their collections there or working there. And it's amazing. Anybody who hasn't been next time you're in Paris, it's a must see. Um, we saw you this past summer in Paris and you were incredibly kind to give our group visiting Paris an introduction to your exhibition, 1997 Fashion Big Bang. And I want to ask you very briefly about the premise for this show, because not only did it include seminal work by Martin Margiela, it also included the first work of John Galliano for Dior. And that particular year, as you have said, has been described as a watershed year in the history of fashion. Could you tell us a little bit about the concept behind this show? Because I think that the show itself and this moment in fashion history really kind of sets us up in a really cool way to get into what happened next. Yeah, I had the idea of the exhibition in 2018 and before doing the Martin Margiela show because Martin Margiela was having his, his Stockman collection, which is one of the best collections he, he had. And I, I say, oh, what a curious moment because Comme des Garçons had a lumps and bumps, body meets dress, dress meets body with all the formations uh, and paddings, like called the hunchback dresses. And at the same moment, like one day apart. And for Comme des Garçons, it's still one of the strongest collection. And for History of Fashion too, <laughs> this is the strongest collection. So I say, what a curious moment. So I work on the thread and it was like, very weird, having much more than 40 different events, which clearly transformed the moment in just one year. It was a bit scary too, because I never wrote about this year being particularly a standout. I, the only thing I, I, I wrote about was um, Colin Hill in her 1990s exhibition at the FIT. She just pointed that out, and, and so I said, okay, I'm not the only freak to, to, to see that. <laughs> and then, yeah, it was an amazing moment for, for the Ready to Wears collection and for this impressive Spring Summer 97 haute couture moment when you saw first Galliano at Dior, first McQueen at Givenchy, first couture by Jean-Paul Gaultier, and a return of Thierry Mugler, which was Les Insectes collection, which was the strongest couture collection of his of his career and maybe his strongest collection. You had also the passing of Lady Diana. You have uh, like a design, a fashion designer, Charles Castel-Bajac dressing the Pope. You had a new appearance of a new wave of, of young Belgian designers, such as Olivier Desquens, Raph Simons has his first show. Martin Margiela was, was aimed at, appointed at, at Hermès and prepared his first collection. It's all these kind of different events, which the baguettes and the first Sex in the City episodes shot in New York. So yeah, it was very a moment which was very strong. And and I think I did an exhibition about Marta Margiela, then I did an exhibition about the back, back of clothes and the back of body. So I say, why not doing an exhibition about a year in fashion? So I said, I would love the people to feel again this, this excitement of discoveries and plunge them and dive into a year. So I did everything chronologically. So nearly a day after another. And it was spectacular. Like, I really didn't know what to expect walking into it. But Cass and I, our jaw was constantly on the floor to 
actually have this whole story splayed out in front of us that all of these beautiful moments in fashion history happened in the same year. It was really, really incredible. And I asked you about this in hopes of getting to this bigger idea that there was a definite shift in the 1990s of the general public's kind of access to or awareness of a lot of these designers' works. Um, A lot of this has to do with fashion shows. And in decades prior, fashion shows really tended to be held behind closed doors. They were kind of meant for industry only. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on kind of this turning point when fashion shows and also this concept of fashion weeks around the world makes this broader transition into the public imagination at large. 1997 was certainly a key year for fashion shows because the, the, the presentation of Galliano first collection for Dior and Alexander McQueen first for Givenchy attired more jo- journalists than ever and had this very excitement about this proposition, this first collection, that the general audience worldwide was interested in because it was really the two Britons in, in very venerable uh, French fashion houses so it, it shifted the whole uh, thing. And also because fashion TV, which is still a fashion channel, only dedicated to runways, were launched. It was launched in 1997. So it was really a moment that created also a spectacular moment with the shows because all the, the, the power of LVMH, for instance, for Dior and Givenchy, were full throttle because all the show set was something immersive like an immersive experience and something much more stronger. Because when you look at the history of fashion shows, so you have the 1920s, where the first fashion shows open to the public with its buyers and clients, and the journalist happens with the help of Lucille also. So we, she's known, the designer is known to have launched one of the first fashion shows at, at the time. You had this also strong moment with Dior with his first collection, his first show, which clearly was a public event at the time, like an excitement. Many different shows in the 60s exploring the notion of performances and as a show in the 1970s. And then 1980s, it was like a drama play and a lot of props in 1980s, but more inspired by theatre. When the 1990s was about movies, it was all about creating a movie set so with a lot of very different budget to that. And 97 was certainly a moment to create this huge, this huge uh, theme that we all have in mind from the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're very cinematic in a lot of ways. Uh, we will talk about this a little bit more when we get to the Margiela 2024 artisanal show, I think. But um, I don't think that anyone is going to argue that the two masters of fashion spectacle, and we're talking full-on spectacle here, in the 90s and the early 2000s were Lee McQueen and, of course, Galliano. So how did their shows reinvent this medium? Because as we, we shared, I think it was more about movie than theater. It was clearly studied for the video. It was clearly to find the, the luster of camera uh, on it. It was meant for being filmed. And they create a scenario for everything. So it was much more, much more stronger. It was not only a theater stage. It was clearly a movie set. And that's clearly what they mind because when they designed the collection, when they invented the fashion show, they have this like scenarios in the head. 
and with these little stories that you can that you, that you could discover through the press releases. So clearly, cinema was clearly here in the mind. Yeah, and, and cinema, I guess, has that intention of mass distribution, right? So that's really what we're getting at. Dress listeners, we're going to take a tiny break here for a word from our sponsors. But we'll be right back with more with Alexandra as he helps us break down the Margiela 2024 Artisanal Show. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives. But what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can. By joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back. All right. Let's get into the show, if we can. This is what everybody's been waiting for. Um, so to say that the Margiela 2024 artisanal show caused a sensation around the world is a bit of an understatement. I mean, the fashion press immediately exploded in excitement and acclaim. Kathy Horn, who's one of my favorite uh, fashion journalists, remarked, 
Martin Margiela's couture collection will go down in fashion history. John Galliano designed a collection that leaves all the other couture shows in a dust. And Tara Gonzalez at Harper's Bazaar proclaimed that in one fell swoop, Galliano, quote, reinvigorated everyone's love of fashion. The fashion was so visceral, it made me feel present in my own body. And I think a lot of people around the world, whether they were at the show, like yourself, or um, were watching it through video, experienced similar feelings. And after I had seen the show in its entirety later in the day, I texted a friend that this really feels like a clarion call for fashion to wake back up again. So you were there. What was the atmosphere like being at the show? Because a lot of journalists even wrote that they could feel something was like building before the show even started. I'm curious about how you felt while you were there watching the show. And if you have any specific thoughts on some of the elements that made this show truly remarkable. First, it was the last show of the fashion week. So it had a very special place. Everyone was a bit tired of the whole thing. The invitation also was very interesting because it was a very wide cupboard with inside the invitation be metropolitan tickets. So it was very weird, but very nice. And so we arrived on the Pont Alexandre III. So Pont Alexandre III is for people who've never been to Paris, one of the most dramatic bridge of all the city because there are a, a huge two huge pairs of, of tremendous golden statues. And it was also the, the inspiration when you, um, if you see the movie Anastasia, uh, which was a, a cartoon in the 1990s. It was all set on, on that bridge. So it's a very strong Belle Epoque bridge. So it's also something again you key about the collection. So you go on the left bank, there are a lot of crowds. You go through the crowd and then you, you walk down the huge stairs. And curiously enough, it was the same stairs uh, used by a funny face movie mm. by Fred Astaire. Audrey yeah, by Fred Astaire in the movie when they arrive in Paris. And it was like a, a very, very thin rain. So it was like a, a mist of a rain. So it was very dark. And there was this strong light going through the tunnel because under the bridge you had a tunnel for, for the river, Seine, but also for a, a way there. So you had to enter this tunnel and it was a reproduction of a, a bistro. So very classical bistro, a French bistro and Parisian bistro with a lot of tables and chairs everywhere. And then you entered the bistro and it was inside like a haunted house because everything was left as it was. There has been a huge party there, but in the 1910s and nobody cleaned in then. <laughs> it was exactly the feeling of dust, weird. You had this queer, using a very old term of queerness about this show. And I remember there were waiter everywhere and they gave you this little sugar lavender taste candies. And I was sitting outside and then I say, oh my God, I'm going to be cold. And then people, a waiter arrived with grog. So grog with his rum and lemon and, and honey and went distributing to the guests. And he also have these amazing blankets made by an English factory just to, to keep you warm. And it was very strange because it ran one hour late which is very unusual right now in fashion shows because this is something used that we used to see in the 1990s and in the year 2000 but 
Recently, it was quite rare. If a fashion show has a 30 minutes late, it's a classic. But one hour is very long. And I remember that he had some street lamps, like was very Parisian street lamps in irons. He had it there inside under the bridge. And a very, very striking sound was the waves of the boat crashing into the middle of the bridge because it was like a reverberation of, of something. And each time a boat, a flyboat came under that bridge, you had this sound of waves crashing, which was like a very like thing. And everybody thought each time that the show was starting with this sound, which it didn't. And then it started and it was had, the sound of Paris. <laughs> it was really yeah, it was no, it was a sound of Paris but make made weird because we're not used to have this metal metallic wave crashing things. So it it, it clearly underlines the oddity of the of the moment. And then at the, the other side of the tunnel was closed by a huge screen and photographers, uh, fashion photographers there also. And the huge uh, movie was on, on the screen and I couldn't, where I was seated, I couldn't see what the movie was about. But I saw some few images about a scene like between the Belle Epoque, so yeah, the very late 19th century to 1940s, very dark in black and white with old cars and with this like thieves and lovers and weird dolls walking bare feet on glass crashes and slits everywhere. So it was a very dark moment. You had the music, then a concert by Lucky Love. And then you see this man running under the bridge on the video. And then the, the guy arrived just in front of me. So it was like, so it was quite quite impressive because he arrived like running and he stopped like he was like on a run like running from someone and then it started and we noticed that he, he was very like unusual because he had his face glowing like glass and first thing I thought it was wow he's wearing a mask because he couldn't move the face but the eyes and he has he was bare chest and wearing these very tight corsets, and the pants was very, were very beginning of twentieth century popular pants in men's wardrobe in, in wool and these classic shoes. And then he started to walk in very languid, like he was seducing and in the meantime threatening us. And it all started like that. And something very interesting was the moonlight because it was also a full moon night. And it was clearly in the vibes here. All people were saying that it's the moonlight, the moonlight is important in the show. And, and where I was sitting was the beginning of the tunnel. So we had this moonlight like dividing the air because a lot of fog machine also came. So you have this very dramatic scene. And the first idea I had in mind, which was also the main inspiration of the show, was Brassailles uh, photography. So Brassailles uh, was a French photographer who shot this underground Parisian scene and a lot of, of prostitutions, a lot of people, of men in the street in the darkness. It is very, very strong influence for John Galliano. And this was clearly the main inspiration for the whole thing. And this is not the first time Galliano has actually worked with Brassai, um as an inspiration for a show. I think it was back in 2007. I could be wrong on that date. But this is a recurring theme for him. Um, and that makes perfect sense in terms of what I want to talk about next, because Galliano's love affair with the history of fashion has really been essential to the work that he has been making for 
decades. And some of our listeners will probably remember that we have mentioned before on the show that um, his 1984 graduate collection from Central St. Martin's was based on this sort of just post after the French Revolution hipster subculture of the Enquiables. Um, We have already done a two-part episode on the Enquiables and their feminine counterparts, the Mameveus. So listeners, you can tune back into those two episodes if you want to learn more about those references. But Alexandra, I'm hoping that you could speak very generally here to start about Galliano's established use of fashion history references before we, of course, speak about some of the more specific ones in the show um, that we're discussing today. Yes, Galliano has his obsession for not the entire history of fashion, but for very specific decades of fashion. I think the Belle Epoque, so very end of 19th century and before the First World War, was is still very, very vivid in his design. And I think, and I know for sure, that his very favorite decade are the 1930s, because it's very obvious in his design and especially in this collection that this was occurring. So it is a mix of everything. So it, the influence of the, of the history of fashion is design was so vivid that his detractors invented a nickname for him called John Galliera. So the name of the Paris Fashion Museum, <laughs> which was clearly good for us. It was good, uh, good publicity and promotion for the museum. But all of of the people who didn't like John Galliano at the time say it was too much of a retrospective, too much costumes and not enough research of of contemporary fashion. Yeah, and all these people you could see as influence of these women, like Marquesa Cassati, has a very strong influence in his career because it's all the sounds about decaying glamour. It's all the sounds about a past opulence that is no longer effective. And of course, he has this obsession with masters of fashion, which are Madeleine Vionnet, Balenciaga, and he's a technician, which is very important to point out. He's a very technician. He knows how his technique is done. And is because I had a chance one time to, to show him an exhibition round about Balenciaga, and he, he went here with his studio, and he got the structure of each clothes perfectly there's a most perfect understanding of what it was he even touched one time a dress <laughs> he wasn't supposed to do so by saying you know it's galliano so you can't. <laughs> because he saw the lace he saw lace but the lace was molded like it was carved a sculpture and he said what is that and say and at a moment he told me look over there so i looked and <laughs> i saw him touching that balenciaga called a lace crin, a crin, a crin dentelle, we call it in French. So it was like a, a lace made of very thick threads to be transparent, but to have for the lace, it keeps the transparency, but giving a shape to the transparency. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because we see some very molded, laminated lace elements in this collection as well. So we're going we're gonna to get to that here in a second. Okay, this show. I don't even really know where to begin. It's basically a virtuoso love letter to fashion's past, its present, and and by all accounts, its future, too. So from the designers that Galliano plays very specific homage to, to his own references, to his own past work, and also Dior, and also the patrimony of Maison Margiela. Where would you like to begin, Alexandra? Could you walk us through some of your favorite references embedded in this collection. I mean, they just keep coming down the runway as we're watching. 
Yes, of course. So let's begin with the very first looks, which were all about John Galliano's obsession for the 1930s and especially by Vionnet. I think the like the fifth or sixth, but much more, like the tenth first looks are all this chiffon or very clear black tools that transparent, molded on a shape. And it was very interesting because it was the structure of 1930s, uh, fringes, for instance, and structures that could really, really point Madeleine Dionne's influence out on that. Because when uh, there is, I think on look six, there is a dress with a like, petticoat, like a hoop petticoat, over lame, a very golden lame sheet dress. And this is a structure that is very known, designed by Madeleine Vionnet in the late 1930s. So you could feel all the references there. You could, it was clearly obvious. But which made it very typical was the padding, because all the women had corsets and very, very large hips, very, very like belly puck, absolutely the S line, as you could see, on, molded by corsets of that time. So it was a fusion between the belly puck and uh, the 1930s, and it was all over the beginning. And point also that all the shoes were made by Christian Louboutin, so all the soles were were red, which was a bit distracting, I must say, when you looked at the, at the profusion of details of the look and when you look at the model from the back, you had this glimpse of red under the feet. So it was very interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting that you're talking about that 1890s silhouette um, and then the influence of Vionnet, because before we started speaking, I was looking at some very specific Vionnet dresses that you see him like alluding to or little elements of him of them that you see him combining into some of these looks like her carnival dress, her honeycomb dress, but also some of Vionnet's robe de steel have that, you know, obviously the little panniers at the hips and some of them have that transparent outer layer and I'm like, "Oh, he is playing with all of these things in these looks." It's really really amazing because that silhouette of the robe de steel in many ways is kind of little mimicking that 1890s silhouette or the padding that he's using. So it's incredibly clever once you know what he's, where his mind is going. It's fascinating. And it was really a fusion of all these references that made layers of layers in just one look. So you have so much to analyze with just with one look. And the moon was very present also. Because he wanted really to, again, because it was full moon night, it was a theme of, of the whole show too. And you had these this patterns of moon, you have then these this curious shapes, like fog embroidered on, on, on dark chiffon, and also a skirt full of, with beads, embroideries, which creating you know, the reflection of the full moon on the sea, on a river, worn with, with a cardigan, worn in front which is very something about uh, Maison Margiela's signature. Mm -hmm. So aside from Vionnet, um, who else are we seeing him refer to? I was very surprised because I think he, he, he paid an homage to Azedine Alaya, which was very clear in this collection. Again, not to do shameless auto-promotion of, of the Palais Galliera, but John Galliano came to our exhibition of this our fall winter exhibition dedicated to Azadinaya historic collections of, of fashion, of clothes. And he went for a private tour 
and he was mesmerized by all the design he thought. And, and he was, because also he was a friend to Azedin Alaya. Azedin Alaya helped him starting showing his sh- in Paris in the beginning of the 1990s. So they were very close. And when you saw this black velvet laser cut dresses, it gave me a sense of 1930s, but also a nod to Azedin Alaya, which was very strong at that time. And I loved just the idea of him like being this little wink to Azedin Alaya techniques. Well, and also, too, they're both obsessed with fashion history, right? So uh, Alaya, the show that you were just referring to, was a huge collector. Um, he had a massive collection of, you know, haute couture and garments throughout history that was, that belonged to his own personal collection. Absolutely. So he had this, you see, and, and you can even feel the, the references of certain pieces in the show that were in the exhibition. For instance, at the end, you have a moment when you have stripes, blue stripes dresses, which really look like 1950s dresses, and with splits as an optical play with the stripes, then you can reduce and create a blue pattern. Then when you, you pleat on the other side, you have only a white structure. And this was clearly a note to Carven, to Madame Carven dresses, there was one, and with the same technique in the exhibition, and one of the f- most famous dresses from uh, spring-summer 1948 was also on a cover of L'Officiel de la Mode, and it's clearly not a copy of, of the dress, but you clearly see the inspiration with the last four looks of Angela's show. And I did not pick up on that reference at all, but I, as soon as you made an Instagram post about it, I was like, oh, we have to talk about this. <laughs> They're beautiful. Which was very nice because it, it went out with the Madeleine Vionnet, Christian Dior references that we all used to. It dig into something deeper in the history of fashion, which was this, this woman designers, which now the House of Carven is still on, but that we all forgot about. And, and she was clearly a main actor of, of the, after the Second World War too, and a success. So I think it was very, very clever and very thoughtful of him to having this reference in this show. Yeah. And, and the way in which those stripes are brought together, pleated together, and, and then the incredible precision to make that optical illusion happen is pure artistry. I know the show notes for the collection noted that Galliano and his team invented several new, entirely new techniques that went into the creation of that entire collection. And, you know, as the curator of one of the world's most important fashion collections, you are in a very unique position to have inspected thousands of couture garments in the course of your work, I'm sure. And I'm wondering if you might have some thoughts on the role of historic couture techniques, their preservation, and also their kind of potential evolution at the hands of somebody like Galliano. Everything about haute couture is technique and fabric. This is the whole meaning of this industry, on this discipline, as I like to call it, to just being a laboratory of exploring techniques which are very difficult to achieve in the search of new silhouettes. And I think John Galliano with this collection achieved with the 1950s suit reference, achieved that feeling. And there are also pleats that need to be 
to be recognized as a truly inventive technique because at the moment he had a coat which was like a cupboard, pleated cupboard, but it was fabric. But when the woman arrived, the model arrived, we all thought it was cupboard made, made into a coat. So it was very, very strong. And of course, you have the laser cut, but laser cut is new, not a new technique, but all the way it was done with a reduction of patterns was very intriguing to, to discover. And the layers also. The layers and different opacity and transparency and playing between all the things was very strong. But I think mainly he worked also, uh, the whole collection worked also as a tribute to all these extremely difficult to achieve techniques, which were part of 1930s fashion. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, we have, I'm sure you have seen it. Uh, we have at FIT, the museum at FIT, we have one of Vionnet's dresses that is completely sheer. It's silk chiffon. And the bodice of the dress itself, it's a day dress. And the entire dress is chiffon. So it's completely sheer. It has long sleeves. But the bodice of the dress are these little octagons, right? And it, the octagons are, you know, maybe just a few inches big. Um, they start big at the top. And then as the bodice goes down, they get smaller and smaller and smaller. And the dress is actually fitted. To think about what went into creating one of those dresses is mind-blowing when you see it. And this is the kind of technique that he is still, you know, messing with in his own way and updating. It's it's amazing. Absolutely. That's that's the main references in, into his work. And also... The notion of rain was so very present in the show because it was raining outside a little bit and he achieved to having his fabric soaked at some point. As it was latex, I, I'm not sure what it was, but when you see pants, men's pants and a skirt, which were like soaked and all, all shiny as it was wet. And it was very poetic also in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this was an incredibly sensuous show. And I don't mean sensual. It was that too. Well, maybe we'll talk about that in a second. But I mean, sensuous in the way of meaning visual aesthetics. Um, and, and I would argue that that has a lot to do with the types of materials that he used. But besides some of the, the sheer fabrics that we've kind of already talked about, would you describe for our listeners some of the other types of materials that he was using for this collection? Because some of them go back to that kind of optical illusion. They look like one thing, but they're actually something else. Yes, he played with a notion that Martin Margiela himself loved, which is a trompe l'oeil. So it gives you an impression of nudity, but it's not. And there are some looks some dresses wearing these very sheer tulle dresses, very inspired again by the 1930s. But then the woman bodies were entirely covered by a jumpsuit, a very, very molding jumpsuit with very weird colors, like it was a fauve painting, a fauvist painting. And it gave them the impression of nudity. And I thought first the women were body painted. And you had also merkins at the place of their pubis, just to, to give you the impression that they were entirely naked and only painted, but actually they were fully dressed. Yeah, okay. So for any of our listeners who might not be familiar, would you like to do the honors of explaining what a merkin is, or I'm happy to do so as well? Please, be my guest. <laughs> Okay, so this is actually another quite clever history in the history of getting dressed, maybe not necessarily fashion, but um, merkins, if anyone doesn't know, were pubic 
hair wigs. So a lot of times for reasons of hygiene and um, STIs or STDs, in centuries past, people would actually shave their pubic hair. And to give the illusion that they did indeed have pubic hair, they would wear merkins or pubic hair wigs. And today, actors in sex scenes wear variants of this as well. So they're still around here or there. But when I learned about the merkins, I about died. And I texted you this and you're like, yes, we're going to talk about this. But the Merkins um, in the show are on silk tool and they're actually embroidered. And I was like, oh, oh, that makes cool. Okay. Well, they're embroidered, but they're embroidered with human hair, which is fascinating. So this is yet another layer because the, the use of human hair in fashion um, does indeed have a precedent. Victorian hair jewelry, uh, mourning jewelry. I was at the Roddy Center at the Met the other day, and our friend Elena Kanagi Lou, she pulled out something out of the drawer, and it was a fan. And she was like, April, do you know what this is? It was a lace fan. It was like a, it was like a blonde lace fan. And I looked at it, and I was like, that's human hair. So someone had made this exquisite, beautiful lace and turned it in, into, into the fan itself. It was really, really beautiful. So um, I, I couldn't help but wonder because, of course, you know, uh, last summer there was the great show about hair and body hair mm -hmm. at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs. Um, and one of the pieces that I loved most in that exhibition was, and it was not a Merkin, but if you looked up in this tiny little corner, you could have walked past this piece entirely. It was a particular King's Merkin stand. Mm. And the chat label said that the Merkin that he kept on the stand was made from his mistress's pubic hair. Cool. And I couldn't help but wonder. I was like, oh, did Galliano see that at the show as well? And that's kind of maybe the genesis of that of that really lovely, beautiful idea. You know, this illusion um, of, of nudity and modification to the model's silhouettes, because these jumpsuits were padded out in very specific ways to kind of distort the figure or make it more voluptuous well it's also sometimes being corseted as well can this like distortion and the padding and the corsetry this is just yet another reference to fashion's own history i think this is fascinating do you have any thoughts on this of course all the paddings were very strong and for me really really evoked the shape of the belly poc women with their corsets but i also felt something around the drag scene which is very no coming out on medias and which is now very popular. And I think because all the padding there were very well shaped. And I love the fact that it was increasing women's proportion. Like it was really like outrageous a little bit because some of the women were just very chest under the tool dresses. So I love also this, this type of body inclusivity of in this very hour shaped silhouette, which is something very used by the drag community and made it very popular in the last uh, years. For sure. And also, too, not all of the models, like some of the models were plus-size models as well. So there were multiple layers to, to what he was doing. You know, I think that one of the things that everybody walked away from the show and why they loved the show so much is that it made us feel something. And it's been a very long time since some of us have felt something like that from, from seeing a fashion exhibition. So... Do you have any thoughts on this in terms of the role of emotion and beauty in the future of fashion? Being there at the show, you could feel the story shifting. 
you could feel that. This is, it was a very strong feeling. I was seated next to like women who worked in perfume, who like this 19, in the 1950s, and they're not very used to fashion shows. And they asked me, what was that? And I told them that was if story shifting. <laughs> Because you could feel that really much that he, for Galliano himself in his career, this was a huge moment. But I think for all fashion, this was a, a very curious moment. And also not only by with the clothes, because also we didn't talk about celebrities. Celebrities were not the subject of the show. And you could feel it on the social media. It's just fashion put in its right place, in the center of attention. Because, of course, Kim Kardashian was there. Nobody cared. <laughs> Nobody cared. And even on social media, you could see some glimpses of her in the show. But that's it. The whole show was a point of interest, which is very reassuring for us. Because you could feel the PR star system increasing in fashion. No, you know, all the stars, and I think your listeners have to, to understand that, all the stars sitting at the shows are paid to be there. And I think it's like, it's twisted because it's not a support of, of a brand of a designer anymore. And it's also very difficult because now you think if there is a star in a fashion show, the fashion show is important. But just look at the young designers now. We can't pay for the stars to be there. I know a lot of designers who are friends with young movie stars and the movie, their friends saying to them, I can't go to your show even you're my friend because I'm blocked by another contract by a, on a big fashion house and you're not a big fashion house. And I think it was very, it's a twisted. And I think this show turned, shifted that. You know, we don't care about who is sitting there. The main interest are the clothes, the silhouettes, the makeup, the light, and the fashion show. Yeah. Well, you know, in her review of the show, Kathy Horn, again, she said, you know, in many ways, Galeona's underworld scene was a reminder of what a prison the luxury fashion industry has become. And and I've actually been thinking about this quite a lot in the context of fashion history education, that Galliano kind of delivered a little bit of a master class to us in that. And that master class was not aimed at the consumer. I would argue that was aimed at the industry. And I think in a lot of ways, it's kind of his attempt to remind the industry that you have to remember where we came from. And it was also his way of critiquing the present that, that it's kind of lost its way. And I would love to see this show as the beginning of a narrative arc that he's constructing to his future work that might just shatter this mold entirely. So I don't know. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> I, I felt something in a show. I felt like a revenge because I heard that, of course, the Metropolitan Museum was supposed to do the John Galliano retrospective and everyone was talking about that. And all Anna Wintour was very pushing forward to have the Galliano retrospective and the board of the Met cut off. And it was during the preparation, like many months before the show. And I felt that it was, you know what you missed? <laughs> Is that talent. And, and I felt a bit that in the outrageous way every, everything was put together, I think like um, a real desire of proving something in the show, because it was very different from the past artisanal shows. It was clearly different. It was another level, because you had the level of the, of the makeup, for instance, with Pat McGrath's like, makeup, which went viral on the social medias. Again, 
another fashion history making moment in the realm of beauty. But yeah, everyone lost their minds about that too. And makeup artists, you know, within hours were scrambling to figure out how she got that glass effect on the skin. So, so, so beautiful. And I, I could tell you that when in a show, I looked at all the faces and I had doubts about it was makeup. It was so well made, so perfect, like the glass dolls, that I thought it was mask putting on the face and having makeup created to cover it. It was very, very strong. And, and, and all the, the, the pictures I saw since on social media, none of them are reaching the level of perfection that Pat McGrath uh, achieved for the show. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying about maybe he was trying to prove something because I also texted our friends earlier. I was like, he's going to come back with the next one with something savage. I feel like he's setting us up for what comes next, or at least I hope he is. So I can't wait to see what that might be. This is also something about Maison Margiela having a new, maybe he found finally at Maison Margiela is right rhythm because if, even though you could feel in the collection references to Martin Margiela's work, it was not the point. And even though I'm a Martin Margiela fan and, and, and I curated the show, so I have this huge depth toward him, I, I, I felt it wasn't the point anymore. It was about John Galliano being at Maison Margiela and expressing himself in a new way. And I think he achieved that because, thanks God, it was not about Emily in Paris anymore. It was not about the luster of Paris. It was about the underground world, which is important and very, very crucial for the history of Paris. Paris is a city based on crime, blood, sex, and robbery. We had a huge boulevard called Boulevard du Crime, so a boulevard of crime in the 19th century. We had this old underworld. We had the catacombs. We had this... An adjective I could find a translation, but it, it exactly what came into my mind during the show. It was louche, something which is louche. It was exactly that. I think he say it was a slap in Emily's in Paris face because it was all about which is exciting in Paris about prostitution, this robbery world, this bad and guys and bad girls with being outrageous. And this is something we, we can't see anymore in Paris streets, but it's still there somewhere. It's still the mysteries of Paris. It's still also related to Brassai, of course, but many novels such as uh, Fantomas. Fantomas is a very famous novel which has been translated in many movies. Uh, in, the, in the beginning of 20th century, a guy uh, robbed a thief, but very chic, always wearing a mask like the one on the show, the, the, the guy wore, and stealing everywhere, everyone in Paris. And also Arsène Lupin, which is also another figure in French in literature and movies of, of, of very chic thief in the beginning of 20th century. So I think he really, really point this very queer thing about Paris because a lot of uh, journalists were commenting that it was again about Jack the Ripper in London, but it wasn't. You can testify that it was about the cafes and the bistro that we have. It's not even a bistro. We have a, 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 another French word for that, which is a tripot. Tripot is a bistro very surrounded by bad people and a very underground world, which is Almost, yeah, you can go there if, even if you want to be to be robbed. So um, 
So it was very, very reassuring to see another vision of the city. Mm -hmm. So beautiful. They still exist. I happened to be wandering around quite early in Pigalle last uh, summer, and I walked by one, and I knew exactly what. People were still in there at 6 a.m. People were still partying. The girls were sitting outside, and I was like, uh-huh, I know exactly what's going on in there. And when you look at, again, funny face, you have these two sides of Paris. And I think also now... This is one of the most intriguing cities of the world. I've been there. <laughs> I'm there. And walking in the streets, it's always an amazing experience because even being there since more than 20 years, I'm always discovering new details and new streets, which is sometimes scary because you're thinking that all, for instance, the caves of the, of the, of the cities made on catacombs, so with full with bones, human bones everywhere. It's very intriguing because it's like this huge, shiny luster of buildings and history are built on centuries and something much more dark, which is makes things very exciting. And when you looked at Funny Face movie, you also had this double side of Paris. You had the very luster of couture from the right bank of, of the city and then something much more intellectual, much more queer, Queerness is a very important word here about the left bank and this kind of louche uh, bistro. Yeah. Well, now I have to go watch Funny Face. It's been a few years since I've seen it. Before I say goodbye and before I thank you, I would also like to ask you about your latest book because you are the co-author of the most recent Catwalk book. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? We have mentioned it already on the show, but since you are here with us today... Oh, thank you. And also, this is this is a tie into Audrey Hepburn as well. True, linked <laughs> with the whole story. Yes, so Tim Netson in London, with the editor of the whole Catwalk series, Adelia Sabatini, and the Maison Givenchy, clearly very nicely came to me two years ago, more than two years ago, uh, um, suggesting that I could write the historic description of each shows since the very beginning of the career of Hubert de Givenchy, so in the first, in spring-summer 1952, and going through history until uh, Alexander McQueen, and I finish at, uh, with Alexander McQueen. Anders Christian Madsen is then uh, the other co-author of the book, and he's writing everything from Julian MacDonald, so after Alexander McQueen, until the last collection of Matthew Williams. And it was a very nice experience because it offered me to dive into each shows because we've decided to go to, to treat every show since the very beginning. Because when you look at the previous editions, such as Dior, which has a, the same timeline, let's say, they always summed up collections like for Spring Cement, for Winter. And then say, no, we need to treat each show apart. So we found Depot de model, so it's photographies that were taken just after the show of all the Givenchy shows kept in precious in the archive because Givenchy is the most recent archive in fashion, but in fashion houses, but now it's the most effective and the most perfect uh, fashion archive you can ever imagine because everything is, is meant for searcher and for designers. So it's very precious. And what Givenchy offered me also, which is very, very precious, was to be free in my writing. So contextualizing with other designers and proving the successes of Hubert uh, de Givenchy, which we, it was um, uh, relevant, but also the doubts 
of a collection. For instance, in spring summer 65, you couldn't say that he had a great show when you, you, you knew that André Courrès was showing his bomb of a collection, which clearly shifted again fashion history. So they allowed me to talk about all the designers. And another fact that I loved, it's about also the Chanel return, because I had the chance to read all the press clips kept by Givenchy Archives in during the 1950s, which is a very rare treasure very rare because you could see them, the profusion of criticism of good and bad and all the richness of it. And Gabriel Chanel was, were coming back in fashion in for spring, summer 1954. And I learned so much about that because she was presenting the last collection. So, and every, and something I, I never understood and I understood thanks to Givenchy's book is that everyone was freaking out all the designers were doing jersey suits and all the journalists present during this collection say they're all freaking out because Gabriel is coming back. So they want to they want to to prepare things that she could she could do and imagine in being ahead. So I think it was very, very strong to read commentators at that time because they get a feeling of a whole industry, which is very precious, which is sometimes something we couldn't have the time as an historian to treat and to work on. Alexandra, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts. And I really appreciate it. Everyone go out and buy a copy of um, Alexandra's book. It is already on our dress bookshelves, listeners. Um, so you can head over there and we'll put a link to it in our show notes as well. But thank you so much. We can't see, wait to see what's next. Thank you, April. Thank you so much. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your thoughts with us on John Galliano and his team's work for this fashion history making collection. And Cass, you know, I mean, this happened a couple of weeks ago, but you and I haven't really had a chance to talk about the collection. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the show? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely loved it. I think my favorite thing was the Merkins. Of course. Which <laughs> you and Alexandra talked about a plenty. Of course. <laughs> and of course, I did a reel watching it and then looking for all those fashion history references, which you all also talked about, was super fun. Finding his his inspiration for his all his Viennet pieces and Lan Van. And it was kind of a little bit like an Easter egg hunt, right, for fashion historians in the know. Mm -hmm. And as validation for that reel, John Galliano actually liked my reel. So I guess I was a little bit spot on um, with some of those references. And we will repost that probably to the dress reel <laughs> too as well. Yeah. And then another thing that I really enjoyed was the plus size models that you saw. And mm -hmm. he was one of few designers to use different body shapes. And, you know, is he making a statement about using plus size models on the runway for the future? I don't know. I think it really was in service of his line a lot. I don't know what you, how you feel about that. But to get that really severe corseted hourglass shape, you need a woman who's not a size zero two, right? You need a bigger woman who can create that curve of a line. So yeah, yeah. And that was actually something that was picked up on by more than one fashion journalist that wrote about the show saying, you know, he has in the past only used size zero or size two models. And here we see some plus size women, but it's not necessarily like just inserting a plus size model in the show. 
it was about the work itself and it was about the narrative and mm-hmm. it was about the artistry and it was it didn't feel like an like a like like a platitude yeah, in any exactly. sort of way that it was about the work itself so, yeah and the yeah. beauty of of celebrating that the woman's form right so mm-hmm. yeah just a beautiful stunning collection again all of these references to his own history at dior and the work of designers past whom he admires like I said, Vionnet, but also Christian Dior, Madame Carvin, Azadine Alaya, you know, from those designers to the silhouettes and dress practices of bygone eras. I mean, to truly understand the virtuosity of this collection, you know, you, it's really not possible unless you have that knowledge of fashion history. So maybe it inspired some people to learn more about the history of fashion. And making that knowledge available to the public is one of the reasons that April and I launched Dress the School of Fashion earlier this year to teach people, kind of give people an entry level introduction to fashion history that they might not otherwise have. Yeah, because not everybody is in a location in the world where maybe fashion history education is available to you. That's why it's online. That's why we're doing it online. Um, And we also wanted to make it accessible and affordable. So you know, if you take classes with us, you don't need to enroll in a degree program. <laughs> uh, you can just join us online from anywhere in the world. And Cass, you are about halfway, if maybe not even three quarters of the way through your class, What Women Wore to the Revolution. And my great designer series actually launches in early April. So for more details on both of these, you can head over to dressedhistory.com to learn more and also to sign up. And you can also head over to our website to check out more information on my Fashion History Fridays at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where I'm doing tours of the museum's permanent collection on select Fridays at the moment. I just want to give a big shout out to all of our New York City listeners who came last week. And let me do a little beta test out, um, adding in some new artworks. We had a really nice time. And I just want to add uh, or read a little quick note from one of the attendees, Eric, who sent this to us after the tour by way of email. He wrote, quote, thank you for a fantastic tour. April was very knowledgeable, warm, inviting, and spoke to us at our level. I appreciated the grand historic approach spanning many hundreds of years. I saw parts of the museum exhibits that I never knew existed. I also love learning about the history of the Met Museum itself. Bonus. We definitely attend a continuing series focusing on different topics and concepts. Well, Eric, you got it. Because if you guys keep coming to these tours, I'm going to keep creating new ones with new artworks. Um, it's like, you know, it's it's really fashion history is at our fingertips when we go to the Met, honestly. <laughs> And April, we should probably mention that if people are coming to New York sometime soon, you are open to booking private tours for them on other days and times. Yes. So if you want to learn more or inquire further, you can always email us at hello at dresshistory.com. And I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider how fashion figures into bringing you joy next time you get dressed. As always, we love hearing from you. So again, write to us at hello at dressedhistory.com. And of course, that is our website, dressedhistory.com, where you can sign up for our classes, sign up for April's tours. And you can also, of course, always DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episode. To find the content specifically connected to today's episode, check out the hashtag dress 347. Also, you can find Alexandra and Anders Christian Madsen's book on Givenchy, which we discussed at the end of the episode, on our dress bookshelf at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash dressed. 
There's also a link um, to our bookshelf in our show notes, as well as a link to the official video of the Maison Margiela 2024 artisanal show on the Margiela YouTube channel. And if you haven't seen this official version of it yet, I highly encourage you to do so because it's a little bit of an extended version that has some film elements in it. And there's so much more to this show that we didn't even really get time to speak about, including the choreography. You know, the models are kind of performing as broken dolls of sorts. Um, and also there's a short film by Bob's Lerman, which sets up the premise for the entire show taking place in the city underbelly of Paris in the 1930s. So this is not to be missed. You must check it out. And thank you always for tuning in and more dress coming your way Thursday. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.